Our Bible reading today is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Since this passage begins about eight days after Jesus had said these things, it might be sensible to summarize what we read in the preceding verses, the things that Jesus had said. He had said that Peter should not reveal that Jesus is the Messiah. He had said that the Son of Man will suffer, be killed, and be raised to life. And he had said that those who would come after him must take up their cross daily and follow him. Would you please pray with me? Living God, please help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. This is Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus had said these things, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became radiantly white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, began talking with Jesus. They appeared with glory and spoke about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Peter and his companions were overcome by sleep. But when they awoke, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While Peter was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. After the voice had spoken, only Jesus was present with them. The disciples kept this to themselves, and in those days they did not tell anyone what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Just wait a second. Can you all hear me okay? Okay. Good to be here. Still weird hearing Pastor Kyle, but I'll get used to it, I'm sure. Um, okay, so I'm going to start with a personal story. So someone I know had, has presently fallen out of love with school, with home-based learning during this uh, very weird school year. Um, he just started middle school, and he doesn't think he needs to learn so much about so many subjects because after all, he just wants to go to trade school. He's practically minded, so he asks why a lot. So we talk about it. We talk about the purpose of school. Why, when we're young, we take up so many different types of classes, science, social studies, English, math, art, music. Why, even though he just wants to be an electrician, it would benefit him to know something about the Bronte sisters and the Grimke sisters. So he won't miss everyday references to them, and he can participate in and appreciate more about the world around him. Of course, traditional school isn't for everyone, and certainly homeschooling isn't for everyone. 
But these conversations make me realize how much harder it is during a pandemic for older students to trust the big picture, the roadmap of education, to trust that the school has a plan to take them somewhere and to teach them some things. Students that lose trust, get tired, lose perspective, and give up. That can be the case. Students have to trust their teachers and trust that their teachers have their best interests in mind. Students have to trust that a curriculum has a reason to teach them about eukaryotic cells and tectonic plates and parts of speech and basic world geography and multiplying fractions and Renaissance art and so on. Students have to trust their teachers. Um, and during a time of crisis, uh, crisis, weird years of hybrid learning, the fact doesn't change. We need trust to keep going or we lose our way. The disciples went through a weird time where they had to trust their teacher had their best interest in mind. Um, the transfiguration is the pivot point in the gospel. It's a change of directions after which Christ turns from his ministry in Galilee, which included healing miracles, growing fame, lots of, lots of teaching, sermons, public sermons, and now he's gonna turn towards Jerusalem and growing adversity from the leaders in the temple and to the cross. And so when things get dangerous, look slippery, when the disciples feel that their hoped for all too literal kingdom is falling away, the transfiguration should give them solid ground to keep going, to not lose faith because they have seen a glimpse of the future. Seeing God's plan unfold teaches us to trust. It reorients us and it transforms us. It's clear from the words beginning this passage, Jesus took them up the mountain, that he's the teacher here. He has some things to teach them. Why, do the, why does Jesus call the disciples to witness the transfiguration? Well, to give them confidence in the future, which isn't gonna look the way they thought it would. To answer the question of his identity, to reframe their understanding of his mission and to show them the heart of the gospel, which changes them from the inside out. Jesus calls the disciples to witness the transfiguration in order to inspire trust, to teach them what's coming, to refresh them for the journey ahead. Because seeing God's plan unfold teaches us trust. It reorients us and it transforms us. So the question I use to organize us this morning is this, why does Jesus call the disciples to witness the transfiguration? There are three reasons, and the first concerns his identity. Jesus calls the disciples to witness the transfiguration in order to give them confidence in his identity. So starting in verse 28, right at the beginning of the passage, we read this. After eight days, after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. So let's rewind a little bit in chapter nine. People are talking about Jesus, who he is. In Herod's palace in verse eight, Herod heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. Some were saying, John the Baptist, who he, he executed, had been raised from the dead. Not great news when vengeful spirits re returned from the dead. 
Some said Elijah had appeared. Some said one of the prophets of old had risen. People were talking, and even the disciples were privy to the gossip. In verse 18 of chapter 9 again, Jesus asked them what the crowds make of him. Who do the crowds say that I am? Same three answers. Maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe one of the prophets of old. But the disciples knew better. Who am I? What do you say? Jesus asked. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ of God. So presumably there was a lot of dead-on accurate gossip about Elijah and an older prophet uh, making their rounds, or Elijah and Moses had been popping up now and again before this time that Jesus was transfigured. People are talking. In the backdrop, Jesus calls three disciples out to witness something in order to give them confidence in his identity. Remember, Peter had just said, you are the Messiah, the Christ of God. He wants to show them who he is. Uh, you may be asking yourself the special significance of Moses and Elijah. Um, for all we know, they were passing out a hat in heaven and they just got the special honors. Why are these two present for this event? Two theories exist. Um, some say that they represent the law and the prophets, scriptural authority, um, the breadth of scriptural authority. Uh, Moses is believed to have written the first five books of the Bible, um, the, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Elijah didn't write any books himself, but he was an, imp an important prophet. And you hear that phrase, the law and the prophets, come out a, a few times in the New Testament. And the, the idea is all of scripture, the law and the prophets, all of scripture. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He also calls the law of love as fulfilling the law and the prophets. So I think this is a plausible theory. Um, though I think it's an important distinction to make that Moses wasn't just a lawgiver. Moses was a prophet as well. He was called by God. He spoke for God. Both of them experienced visions of God. So that's one theory. Another theory exists. Um, some say they represent eschatological promise, promise of the end. Uh, many in interesting things can be said here. I'll say a couple. In Deuteronomy 18, God promises to send a, Mo a prophet like Moses in the future, and people are waiting for that. And in Malachi, the very last of, of the prophets, the last book of the Old Testament, there's a promise for Elijah to return and hold out hope for those who are repentant before God's great day of judgment. So in both of these things, we see a forward-looking momentum, anticipation created. Both people look forward to God's Messiah coming. So I, I think both of these theories are good. I don't think they are mutually exclusive. I think we can trust in both of them, but let's not miss out on the most obvious reading of this passage. Moses and Elijah show up to prove that Jesus is someone different than them, something different. In the backdrop, some people think Jesus is Elijah. Other people think he's an older prophet, aka Moses. Them showing up and having a conversation with him helps to reject those competing theories. Who do you say I am, Peter? Not Elijah, not Moses, you are the Messiah. So Jesus calls the disciples to witness the transfiguration in order to give them confidence in his identity as the Christ of God. Another thing this moment shows us is that Christ will be glorified and that other people will share in his glory. Just think about it, life continues after death. Our identities aren't erased by the grave and will rise in resurrected bodies. The book of Hebrews demonstrates that Moses and other individuals of faith looked forward to Christ 
when they trusted God's promises. They trusted that God would fulfill his covenant, and in that way, they looked forward to Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's promises. And so we see God's time warp here. We see the benefits of faith retroactively applied to figures in the Old Testament, two men of faith, as they talk about the very thing in the future that would bring about that uh, resurrection power for them. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to see with your own eyes and know in an instant that life after death was real? That it wasn't just faith, you could see it with your own eyes. That's what the disciples see. The fruit of following Jesus is eternal life. Life spent with God reflecting his glories. Um, The disciples right here need trust. And seeing God's plan unfold teaches trust. So we'll say a little bit more about Jesus' identity in a bit. Or rather, God will say a little bit more about Jesus' identity. But for now, he's not Elijah, he's not Moses, he is the Messiah, the Christ of God. Something altogether different. So why does Jesus call the disciples to witness his transfiguration? The first reason concerns his identity. The second reason concerns his mission. Jesus calls the disciples to witness this event in order to give them confidence in his mission. There's a big knowledge gap. So let's start reading again, verse 30. Um, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring about to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men standing with him, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. The first thing to realize here is that Jesus is in anguish. I'm not talking uh, about the night of his betrayal. I'm talking about now, here on the mountain with his disciples. Jesus' mission on earth is coming to a head, and in a few short weeks, he's throwing himself, his life, his very existence into the arms of love in a great act of sacrifice. If you're reading in, along in your Bibles, you'll notice that this starts, um, yeah, that in verse 51, he, he resolves to set out for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it's not the city of heroes. It's the city that devours its prophets. Jesus is in anguish, and so he ascends a mountain to pray. And he brings several of his disciples with him to pray, but his disciples aren't in anguish. His disciples are sleepy. And perhaps they don't sense their need for God's comfort. Both Jesus and his disciples are seeking to be recharged. They're seeking to be recharged. The disciples um, are just thinking about the next day, and Jesus is thinking about the journey ahead. So let's take a step back for a moment. We know that the disciples were tired. Jesus was tired too. I think it's actually very similar to what is happening on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus told his disciples to keep watch, to remain awake. They couldn't even do that. Uh, One of the key differences in this story, as compared to the way Mark tells it, the way Matthew tells it, are two little words, and those words are prayer and sleepy. Prayer, what they went up to the mountain to do, and sleep, what kept them from doing it. Yeah, I I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Peter actually had already made his own tent and was sleeping in that. Um, They're sleeping while Jesus is communing with Moses and Elijah. 
no doubt being refreshed for the costly journey ahead. They're talking about Jerusalem, his mission. They're saying his departure, and actually the word there is his exodus. They're talking about his death, his ascension. They're talking about the culmination of what God has promised to do in his covenant. All the while, Peter, when he does open his mouth, is talking about tents and who knows what else. Peter misses the big picture, and he has his foot in his mouth. And if I'm honest, I probably would have had my foot in my mouth. Um, We also realize that the the reason Peter speaks up is totally misguided. Um, So Peter chirps in as the men are departing, when they're starting to leave. Um, Italian people talk about the five stages of goodbyes, And this is a little stronger. This is a dogged resistance to them leaving. Peter's saying, no, stay. He wants to experience what's going on. He wants to keep experiencing it. Peter has absolutely no vision for what's coming in Jerusalem. So he wants to stay here on the mountain. All Peter thought he needed was a little shut-eye. Now all he thinks he needs is to redirect Elijah and Moses because they got it wrong and thought they had to be going. And so God uses this moment to reorient them. We so often miss God's intentions, but seeing God's plan unfold before us reorients us. Why does Jesus call the disciples to witness the transfiguration? I think the first reason has to do with his identity. The second reason has to do with reorienting people to his mission. The third has to do with his authority. One of the most powerful things in this passage is what happens next. God literally interrupts Peter with his foot in his mouth. So read with me verse 34 on. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. When we talk about authority, we think of Jesus' words at the Great Commission. He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Jesus is the head of the church. But the reason we make this claim is because God has confirmed his authority over him right here in this passage. Listen to him. Obey him. And Jesus exercises his authority through the church and through obedience to his word. For the disciples, their sense of authority was built solidly around the Hebrew scriptures. And something significant had to happen in order for them to realize that there was a person, a word, that Jesus is the word behind the Old Testament scriptural authority. Twice in the gospel do we hear God speak and shake the earth with his voice. At his baptism, at Jesus' baptism, God says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And here at the transfiguration, he says, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. You have to realize the real target here in these messages is not Jesus. It's the disciples. Peter, James, John, listen to him. He's not talking to Jesus. He's talking about Jesus and commanding his disciples. At the transfiguration, God exalts Jesus above every human authority all other powers in creation, all other positions, rulers and judges, Jesus is supreme. God identifies Jesus as the messenger and mouthpiece of God. And Jesus surpasses the authority of the scripture because he is the word of God. You know, God wants us to come to a knowledge of who he is. 
he shows us how we can do it here. It's going to become by listening to Jesus, by putting our trust in his word, by obeying him, submitting to the exercise of the authority that, that Jesus has organized the church with. The church seeks to, to follow Christ because Christ is the head of the church. Arguably, Jesus takes the disciples up the mountain to confirm his identity. He's not, uh, yeah, but God is the one who actually confirms Jesus's identity here. So we know he's not Elijah. We know he's not Moses. We know that Jesus has confirmed that he is the Messiah, but God takes it the next step and says, this is my son whom I've chosen. God confirms this in order to authorize everything that comes next, the journey ahead. You know, I think that our world is full of charlatans, people who aren't really who they say they are. Uh, and Jesus' claim is as big as it comes. He's not simply someone in the line of David. He's not simply a child of the covenant. Jesus is saying that he is God. He is God's only son. Jesus say, is saying that his deity is veiled in human flesh. And if it isn't, then it's a giant fraud. But the truth of this passage is that God is the one confirming it from the clouds. The heart of the story demonstrates what Christians mean when they say revelation. Also shows us plainly that we believe Christ because he shook the, the first believers so much, the people who witnessed these things firsthand, that they were forever changed. Revelation is the disclosing of something that was previously unknown. Um, listen to how Peter talks about this event. So Peter actually reflects on the transfiguration in one of his letters. He says this, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father with the voice uh, that came from the, the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. For him, for Peter, it is so important that Jesus his miracles, they're not some King Arthur legend. They saw them. They were real. God spoke from the majestic glory of a mountain and said, this Jesus is my son. It's real. So Jesus calls his disciples to witness the transfiguration in order to show them the heart of the gospel, which is a transformation from fear before God to freedom and comfort before God. So when we take a few steps back, what should come to mind for us when we're thinking about God speaking from the clouds is a, a great number of passages from the Old Testament, but especially the Exodus, where God's hiddenness, God's inscrutable nature is on display. God speaks, um, yeah, God followed Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. This is God known at a distance and God who's known with great fear. Um, I think of some of the songs we sang earlier about the holiness of God and the majesty of God and the bigness of God. And the truth is God is unsearchable. God is largely hidden. We can look for God and we will not find him. The New Testament says God alone is immortal 
and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. In this passage, we see that the disciples were afraid, terror-struck. They were petrified because they encountered the hidden God. If you imagine Mary and Joseph before the angel Gabriel, who has to say, don't be afraid, how much more terrifying would it be to stand before the presence of God and not just an angel? His holiness, the weight of glory, our own smallness. Even in Adam and Eve, who walked with God, knew God. After they disobeyed, they hid in fear. Same with Moses and Job, Jonah. Encountering God is terrifying. But listen to the details that Matthew picks up. So we didn't read Matthew's account of this, but I think it's so important. He says it this way. The disciples fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When we are with Jesus... And hear this, we don't have to be afraid before God. Because of Christ, we can stand in the presence of God. You said boldly we can approach the throne of grace, Jen. Yes. Through Christ, we can know God. For those things that are mysterious, that are hidden and inscrutable, God says, through the cloud, listen to my son. Jesus calls the disciples to witness the transfiguration in order to show them the heart of the gospel, which is a transformation from fear before God to freedom and comfort before God. Arguably, there's a lot of tension walking up the mountain for Jesus. Um, I think the Gospel of Matthew says that it had been six silent days. But arguably, when they come down, the disciples have a clearer image of God's plan and their role in it, which is to believe and to obey whatever may come. Seeing God's plan unfold before us teaches us to trust. It reorients us and it transforms us. So I'd say to you, remember to take mental snapshots. Commit to memory the times where we see God's kingdom breaking in. They say angels rejoice when somebody comes to faith, they throw a party. Well, let's take pictures at our own parties when we see God's work unfold. As an employee, take mental pictures when your company chooses to honor the least of these. When the application of a godly principle brings healing, take a snapshot. As a mom or a dad, take mental snapshots when your child takes on pieces of the faith as their own. Seeing God's plan unfold teaches us to trust, it reorients us, and it transforms us. God doesn't always promise an easy life, and that wasn't the case for the disciples who had a hard journey ahead of them. God doesn't promise that following him will be immediately rewarding. So we need to persevere. God strengthens us in moments of encounter, moments where I would say every day we must cling to and remember We'll have mountaintop experiences, maybe when we're at camp or on retreats or conferences, maybe in worship, maybe when we're seeking God. Faith also has valley experiences where there's doubt, where we experience derision, desolation, when we're distracted, when we become disaffected, when we experience disillusionment. Degrees of disobedience pull us from God. Things can pull us away. So we need to anchor our faith in moments of encounter. I'd say these moments where the identity of Jesus is unusually clear, 
where the mission of Jesus is unusually persuasive, where the authority of Jesus is unusually compelling, moments where our role, which is what? To believe and to obey, become unusually crystallized in our hearts because seeing God's plan unfold teaches us to trust. It reorients us and it transforms us. So in closing, in our church year, we next enter Lent, um, which is a season about yoking ourselves to Christ in this journey. It's a journey of faith and community that's made possible by the cross. A journey we take because we know who Christ is, we know what his mission is, and we trust in his authority. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled because you are um, revealing yourself to us through this passage as having sent Christ to this world as your, your only son, whom you've chosen, uh, who we should obey. Um, if we thank you that you shook the early church so hard to forever change the life of the disciples and through the disciples to ever change the course of history so that people can come and know you. We thank you that when we see your plan unfold around us, it teaches us to trust you. It reorients us and it transforms us. And I pray that we would leave this place today trusting, reoriented, and transformed. We pray this through Christ's name. Amen.